I do have my PhD in material science and engineering, as well as my master's. But my bachelor's degree was in metallurgical engineering. And I really, I got that just because I wasn't a very good speller. And that was the hardest one to spell. Um, really, it's metallurgical engineering is the study of metals. Um, and so my focus has been predominantly in metals. I've reviewed a bunch of technical articles for magazines and, and um, participated in industry uh, forums. Um, I'm currently the site lead for uh, quality emission assurance um, at Aerojet Rocketdyne down here in West Palm Beach. And we make rocket engines. Specifically, we make the RL-10 engine, which is an upper stage engine. And we make the RS-25 uh, high pressure turbo pumps. The RS-25 was the space shuttle main engines. Um, and then we make other things that are used on the defense side of, of business. Um, I have worked at several other locations prior to coming to Aerojet Rocketdyne. I've worked in aluminum rolling mills, uh, extrusion and drawing, uh, tube drawing plant. I've taught at community colleges, state colleges, and the University of Central Florida. Um, I worked on the space shuttle program and uh, crawled all through the space shuttle orbiters um, and now am at Aerojet Rocketdyne. Um, so what is material science? There's some, some bigger words up here, but material science is really about studying the relationship between the structure of the material, the processing of the material, how it gets formed or made or heat treated um, to the, the resulting properties of that material in order to achieve a particular performance. Um, so we call this the material science tetrahedron and the engineering parts come, the engineering part really comes in when we go to look at how we can control either the structure, the processing, or the properties in order to get the performance that we want. So why materials? Um, well, it's a simple fact. Uh, we can't do anything without having materials. Everything that we um, touch, handle, work with, leverage are all made out of materials. And so it seems like a pretty broad, broad area of, of applicability. Um, everything from transportation to sports, uh, technology, uh, um, medical uh, devices, and even your everyday sort of commodes. In addition, materials has really defined our history. Right, we had the Stone Age, uh, where we figured out how to use stones and and sharpen them to make arrowheads and and weapons. And then we had the Copper Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, Space Age, uh, Plastics Age, uh, Information Age. So when we look at say the um, Stone Age, that would go back all the way to 
24,000 BC. Uh, so 26,000 years ago, and these kind of stones were used for ceremonial purposes. And then we saw things, tiles being made in India, and then pottery that was used to contain uh, liquids and, and, and product. Um, and then in about 5,000 BC, um, the Egyptians learned how to glaze the stone or the ceramics, the pottery, in order to make it last even longer. Um, if we move on from there, the Bronze Age took place in about 3,500 to 1,500 BC. And in the Bronze Age, that's shown right in here, um, tin was mixed with copper in order to make what is known as an alloy. And that alloy was called bronze. And the reason it became so beneficial was that that addition of tin made the copper or the resulting alloy so much stronger. And guess what we did with that, that stronger material? We made more weapons. Um, the, uh, that, not just weapons, also tools. Um, then came the Iron Age, and so that was um, moving into the more current time frame, 1750 uh, to 1850 A.D., so just, um, what's that, 300 years ago. Um, iron is a very strong material. Um, the big thing that made us uh, able to do that was our ability to reduce it from its ore. And an ore is what a, a material or a metal will start at in its natural state. Um, and the knowledge that was gained during the Bronze Age of alloying or mixing the different uh, constituents together um, helped us to create steels. And so um, looking onward to, to uh, after the Iron Age, we saw the Plastic Age um, come about. And in the Plastics Age, what did we really, um, how did that happen? How did we come up with plastics? Um, well, certainly you could look all the way back in history and see that the, the Mayans uh, actually used natural rubber to um, create balls, you know, rubber balls to play with. But what actually happened in the more industrial environment is an accident. So um, Charles Goodyear, just like the tire, was uh, doing some experimentation and he uh, had accidentally mixed some rubber with some sulfur and it was heated and he recognized that the resultant was a very tough product, which subsequently became the start of our tire business. That was only in 1839. Um, it was, you know, as as recent as 1976 that the plastics and polymer industry really took over the steel industry as the most widely used material. Um, so we've talked about a couple different things. There are a few different classifications of of material. And in a general sense, you know, we have mineral, 
metals, ceramics, and polymers. And I think this, I like this um, set of pictures that I've got put together because it's all Coca-Cola, but Coca-Cola can't be delivered to us unless it comes in a container. And so we use metals to create the cans. Metals are good conductors of both heat and electricity. They're um, strong. Um, they can be deformed or bent, shaped. Uh, ceramics, on the other hand, are generally a compound between a metal and a non-metal element. Uh, they have a different type of chemical bonding than a metal does. Uh, ceramics will be an ionic or covalent bond. Um, and they're generally insulators of heat and electricity. They're really hard, but they're oftentimes brittle. Then, of course, we have our polymers, which bring in so many uh, varieties from really hard polymers to very soft and rubbery polymers. They have a large molecular structure. These polymers are, um, are organic, meaning that they're, they contain carbon and will have hydrogen and oxygen or nitrogen other elements that, that allow it to form at the particular shape of its molecular chain. Um, one of the cool things about material science is that you can study it at all sorts of different scales. Um, we're looking at things, you know, if we take the, the scale of nature, you can see a butterfly is about 0.1 meters and we can go all the way down to uh, DNA, which is two nanometers wide. Well, in the material science world, the same sort of thing happens. We have huge objects, um, which can be uh, nano sized, uh, reduced in size to be um, uh, Microelectromechanical micro systems that will operate in, in uh, robots and other types of, of devices. Um, even further down, we can start looking at the atoms that make up the uh, structure of the materials. In fact, this picture right down here shows you 46 different iron atoms that have been positioned like a corral. It's a pretty neat um, uh, uh, trick that can be done when you're in material science. Um, here's a picture of a aluminum block, and here's a picture of that very same aluminum, but just looking at it at the microstructure um, and, and really getting to understand what's happening inside of it. And that's where we look at the structure in terms of small scale structure or a large scale structure. And that will impact how the, the um, performance of that design will work. Um, really, one of the coolest things, one of the things that really excited me about material science was the, the, the tools or the uh, devices that we got to use. Um, over here is a transmission electron microscope, and this is a scanning electron microscope. And both of them basically operate the same. They create a stream of electrons and they hit the particle or the object that they're wanting to look at 
and those electrons interact with the atoms um, of the substance that you're looking at and reject additional electrons from the substance or bounce off um, and come back to a detector, which then can create an image. And so uh, here's a beetle, um, but it's being looked at with a scanning electron microscope. And so you can see all the really cool details that a beetle has um, and the way that the uh, beetle is shaped that will allow it to collect moisture on its back better um, and, and in dry climates. Additionally, with some of these tools, you can actually shave out a teeny microscopic part and then look at it differently and look at columns of atoms. And that's what you see here on the right-hand side. Each of those are a column of atoms in a metal. So I always thought that was really cool to be able to play with toys like that. Expensive toys, but cool toys. Um, I wanted to share some stuff that's really newer in material science. And for you, it you will you might have thought thought that this has been around forever. But additive manufacturing or 3D printing is something that is relatively new. I apologize, this is gonna have some noise. Um, let's watch it play. So what it is, is a laser that's running, it's a laser that's running over a bed of, of uh, nickel powder. And that laser melts the powder in that layer and it's creating a, a 3D product. Um, what it will do after it finishes going around all of the, the shape that it's creating, it'll spread another layer of powder on top. So you'll see a, a big thing slide across and, and then, and then recode it. Those are the downwards. Real light power. Yeah, those are downwards. that's going to spread the powder over top. Looks good. And the laser will start all over again. Layer by layer, it will build up an entire part. And in fact, what you see in this picture below is one of these 3D printed parts being made into a rocket engine and being test fired uh, on a test stand. The material, so this is a great big picture of it, and you see the processing of it. But we can look at it when it's really small, too. We can look at the microstructure, the way the, the grains line up um, right as it's built, right after it's built, cut it up, polish it, and look with a microscope, a light optical microscope like you might have used in school. Um, so then we can process that material more, heat it in an oven, kind of like baking a cake, um, and that will change the way this all looks. This piece 
after heating looks like this. You'll notice this is at the same magnification or the same size. Then we can look at that with one of those really expensive fancy toys, the scanning electron mic microscope, and see a very similar, um, it's harder to tell. You can see the lines that go around the grains. And then we could take it even smaller and we've trenched out a little piece of metal from here. And from that, we're looking at a very, very, very close area. And we see what's happening at a subcellular level. And we can tell that there's a particle here. Then we can use some even fancier toys, the transmission electron microscope, and look at the arrangement of the atoms. And so this is that um, a select area electron diffraction pattern that's created from the arrangement of the atoms in the crystal structure. Um, so all of that, you can see how material science touches every aspect of one's life, but really it helps us get to these extreme environments. And to go all the way out to outer space, we have to understand uh, things at that very uh, finite detail level. Um, I have uh, just a little snip here of the different products that um, the company I work for uh, produced for the Mars Perseverance mission. Um, you know that Mars Perseverance mission is, uh, it, it, it launched in July and it's due to land on um, on Mars, February 18th. So it's a pretty exciting mission and we had a lot of different um, um, roles in it, including the thrusters uh, that will help it land and position it itself. Uh, we make the lower stage engines that make all that fire. We also make the RL-10 engine, the one I work on a lot, and that's way up here. It doesn't ever fire until it's in outer space. Um, and then once we're on the surface of Mars and we're going to collect those samples, uh, the um, thermo, we have, we've created a thermoelectric generator to help power uh, that rover perseverance around. So I want one last video and I'm not going to talk to it during it because it's a really, really, really cool video.
All right. Um, so that's a little bit about material science. I'm excited about it. Um, and I hope that you guys get excited about it and want to learn more. Um, do you have any questions? Thank you so much for your presentation. If anyone has any questions, just type them in the chat. And while we wait to see if anyone has one, I have a quick question. Sure. So, like, how powerful is like a rocket engine compared to, like, for example, like a car engine? All right. So, um, they don't really measure power in the same units. Um, you know, a car is going to measure in horsepower, and a rocket engine is going to measure in terms of thrust. Um, and I don't really know how to exactly convert that. Um, the the RL10 engine has about 25,000 uh, pounds of thrust. Um, and that can, well, it can get us all the way to Mars. Wow. So we have another question. It says, how do you shape the rubber tire with the laser beam? How do you shape the... Sorry, what was the question again? How do you shape the rubber tire with the laser beam? Ah, so when we're dealing with the um, laser and making the 3D printed, we're dealing with metals rather than rubbers. Um, and um, so that laser will just go, uh, it would be like drawing a picture in a book where you draw a page, uh, a little picture on each page and then flip the book to see the whole story. It's kind of like that where you're doing one layer at a time and then you, the, the platform moves down, at, more powder is covered over it and then the layer passes over again where the laser passes over again to create the next shape. And then another question is, how long does it take for it to shape an entire object and outline it with the laser beam? Yeah, so that was, you got to watch one layer and that was a really small part. Um, we have some parts that take 30 days of the laser running like that the whole time. That's one of the challenges um, that we have, you know, making sure that there's not a power interruption, a lightning storm that passes through any sort of problem like that that could disrupt that process. Um, when it's disrupted, there's oftentimes have to start all the way over. Um, so 30 days is about our longest one right now. Um, and others that are closer to four days. It's still much, much faster, however, than making it the conventional machining way. Wow, that's so like so much. Um, are there any more questions? Also, I forgot to mention if anyone has any questions and they forget to like ask it, you can always email it to me and I can try forwarding your question. Like that would be great. A minute to think of any more if they have any. 
when you make something that takes a long time, how do you make sure there's not a fire? So it is per the, the chamber that is being built or the the chamber in which the product is being built um, is purged of oxygen so that without oxygen, you can't have fire. Um, but that's a great question because a lot of metals like aluminum um, can actually catch fire. In fact, that's how you get the different colors in fireworks by putting different metals uh, in them. Um, and so uh, we make parts out of copper, out of nickel, out of aluminum. And when we are building them, we purge the chamber of all of its oxygen um, and maintain that purge um, with an argon uh, bath, sort of argon gas bath. Wow. After the laser is done with it, how does it become a solid? Because you said they use a powder. Yeah, so the laser actually is melting it. It's so hot and such a concentrated energy, the laser melts that powder. Um, in fact, let me go backwards a little bit. If you could imagine um, a droplet being melted, that would look kind of like this. Or if you ever looked at a weld, you know, it kind of looks like this. And then the next layer comes over and that's the next melt pool. So you can see these melt pools.